and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Clement. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And actually, I should have probably chipped in on that. Uh, we're also uh, very lucky on a number of occasions to have some guests, and today is no different. So, Gareth, would you like to introduce our guest on the podcast today? I would be delighted to. So today we have Mark McGrath from AGLX. Mark and I were introduced over LinkedIn by uh, a sort of a few mutual friends, actually, talking largely around OODA loops, the connection framework, both things that we've talked about on the podcast before. And off the back of our influencers episode on John Boyd, we both agreed that we probably hadn't done the subject justice and that we needed to do a probably dedicated episode around the OODA loop itself. And I couldn't think of anybody better to, to bring onto the podcast to discuss that than, than Mark. Mark's uh, very similar to me. He's a former Marine, but he's of the US variety. So he's a former US Marine artillery officer. Um, and then uh, has subsequently gone into the world, the commercial world of consultancy, very similar to myself, and runs his own podcast, which I'll let him talk about in a moment. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll let Mark sort of introduce himself far better than I could. So, Mark, really glad to have you with us, and welcome. Yeah, thanks. Greetings from uh, greetings from the other side of the pond. I uh, one correction to the bio. Uh, a few years ago, our Commandant General Amos uh, wrote a, a directive in order the, the term former Marine is to be stricken. So we're U.S. Marines till we die and, and then beyond. <laughs> well, it was really funny was that my entire life up to that point had been to say, correcting people to use former and not X. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the space I'm currently in. But I think you're right. I think, you, yeah, once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, no, I'm... Uh, I'm with uh, AJLX. I'm the chief learning officer there. There's uh, five of us. It's a, a better known business here in the United States. We're adaptive strategy consultants. My background was uh, history undergrad and a master's degree in economics. I did uh, six years active duty in the U.S. Marines. I had attended school on a uh, Naval Reserve ROTC scholarship with a Marine option. I was a field artillery officer, served mostly in the Pacific, out, in, out permanently stationed out of both Hawaii and Okinawa, and did a lot in, uh, in Southeast Asia and countries like the Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, other places, Australia. Got out, had a brief stint in medical sales, and then got into asset management for almost 20 years, and then went on my own as a consultant, then joined up with AGLX at the end of, at the end of last year. So my, my first in, engagement with what we'll talk about came as a uh, fourth class brand new midshipman learning about what was then called the Boyd cycle and ironically he was still alive at the time um, as in our uh, warfighting curriculum so uh, the book warfighting uh, then known as FMFM or fleet fleet marine force manual number one now known as marine corps doctrinal publication number one that was required reading and it's been in my briefcase ever since I, I, I read it and reread it constantly it's probably the most given book I've handed out to people. It's really easy now because you can just email them the link to the PDF, <laughs> but it's a very uh, valuable text. Boyd had a lot of influence on it, but that's very, it's a really a narrow part of Boyd's scope of his work and uh, Ponch and uh, Ponch Rivera and, and the others. And I, that's really our, our dedication is to 
understand Boyd as he intended, but also to not to leave it static, to keep developing and advancing these theories. We do one of the ways we do that is through our podcast, as you mentioned, No Way Out, which is uh, dedicated to Boyd. And we pull from a lot of various categories, be it neuroscience, sports, complexity, Kinevin framework, law enforcement, military, you name it. We're trying to pull from as many sources as we can to show the multidisciplinary aspect of Boyd's work and also the applicability. You know, the severe limit of John Boyd's work is it only applies where humans make decisions and actions. <laughs> well, this is this this is what sort of started it for me, which was and, and in a second, actually, we should we should get you to redo the primer of the UDA loop because it assumes people have listened to those episodes or even that we did it justice. But you, you talk about it. And it seems like the most simple thing in the world. Mm. And I think you immediately go, well, A, that's very obvious. And B, I already do that, already know that. But as you slowly peel it apart, it gets more and more sophisticated and it gets more and more interesting and useful. And the point I made when we talked about John Boyd was in the UK, a huge thing was Brexit. And if you go talk to Dominic Cumming, who was the prime minister's advisor, he happily tells people that the reason why Brexit was successful was because he used the OODA loop to, in inverted commas, beat the anti-Brexiteers. So all of a sudden you get this hint that it can't be that simple and it can't be that shallow that you could actually change the outcome of a country. And so I'm fascinated to delve in. So what, why don't we do that actually, Mark? Why don't you yeah. go back and and... I'm I'm kind of the the civilian of the group and I'm the idiot. Why don't you do just the 30 second primer of at a high level? What is the OODA loop? And then we can sort of dig in and, and pull it apart maybe a little bit more. Yeah. So when I talk about it, I don't. So the way I teach it and, 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 and coach it is starting with orientation first. And then I get to OODA and then I get to OODA loop. And orientation is critical to understand because everyone has one. And they're all unique uh, as a fingerprint, right? Who we are, what we think, what we believe, our ability to learn, our psychological state, our emotional state, our ability to break things down and build things up, our creativity, our, our, our collaborative tendencies, our cooperative tendencies, all of that forms who we are and how we see the world, how we uh, shape uh, what we observe. Uh, if we look at the Uta sketch, that would be our orientation implicitly guides and controls what we see. So you mentioned Dominic Cummings, you know, whatever he does can be observed and whatever you think of him based off your orientation, that's going to shape how you look at what he's doing or thinking and thinking, oh, that's bad or that's good, or I'm, I'm, I'm for Brexit or I'm against Brexit or whatever. My orientation, my, in other words, my cognitive software that I have internal to myself is shaping how I see X, you know, in the case that you mentioned Brexit or say a burning house, you know, a burning house in my neighborhood here, which is a cul-de-sac. If the house was on fire, I would look at it and say, oh my gosh, my neighbor's house is on fire. The neighbors would look at it and say, oh my gosh, my, my property, I, I need to get my kids out. I need to get my, my pets out. Um, the firefighters would say, here's my opportunity to do my job. The arsonist would say, this is what you get for whatever. The, and the arson investigator, everybody's going to look at it from completely different perspectives at the exact same thing. And that talks about the, you know, that place to the ambiguity of our universe. And that's one of Boyd's big thing was, was ambiguity because of the ambiguous nature of things. Our orientation is going to shape and process how we observe, how we formulate decisions, 
how we test those decisions via action, and then how we learn, how we build our cognition, which is essentially the loops. So I always begin with orientation first. Everything starts with orientation. Then you get to UDA. So how an orientation essentially functions is through the process of UDA. You know, a cognitive being, through their orientation, they make observations, they sense make, they process that through that uh, internal operating system, whereupon they formulate decisions, actions, and they're capable of, of learning from those or not learning and, you know, not keeping that orientation uh, dynamic. The OODA loop, in quotes, as Boyd used it, was merely a illustrative abstraction in a very intricate sketch, which was still being worked in, up to his death. The OODA loop sketch, and we say this in the introduction of our podcast, what informs John Boyd's OODA loop sketch? And the loop is always in quotes because it's not, in fact, an actual loop. And we can talk about that. It's an illustrative abstraction of how we deal with reality, how we deal with volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. That's what he was trying to explain via the OODA loop sketch, which the, 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 the last version he made um, that with the help of Chuck Spinney was in 1996, right before he died, he died in 1997. His own thinking evolved because originally it was actually ODA. It was uh, observe, decide, and act. And he was, he was observing the sensors that he was using when he uh, commanded a black ops base in Thailand during the Vietnam War. He was seeing that these sensors were observing, deciding, and acting. And then eventually he came and brought the other O in, orientation, you know, orient. They observe, orient, decide, act. And his own thinking went from a, a loop to something more intricate and complex, which we see in the final version before he, before he died. His own thinking evolved. Most people that we run into or have some understanding of Boyd, they reduce OODA loop to, you know, a very simple circle with O. O D A with with the circles connecting. I'm shuffling awkwardly now because I've just realized I've done that as well when I've talked to other people. <laughs> oh, me me too. I mean, that's how I started. That's how they taught us, really, right? And then and yeah. I, I had to recontextualize. But that's really as you get into Boyd, that's actually what you hope your competitors see Uda as uh, a constant O O D A O O D A O O D A that someone's using. Like if I'm using the OODA loop or I'm going to apply the OODA loop here you'll see that even just saying that you're using UDA. So like it doesn't, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a universal axiomatic explanation of how humans observe, decide, and act in, our, in reality. So it's much more intricate. So when we approach the teaching of it, we're, we're bringing in other things like neuroscience and, and evolutionary biology, just as Boyd did, you know, Eastern thinking. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an extremely intricate, complex understanding of how we interact with our environment. Not a simplification of one, two, three, four, loop, one, two, three, four, loop. That's what most others do. And it's not necessarily that that's wrong per se. It's just that it's an incomplete understanding of what, what, yeah. it, what it is. There's more really. to it. Well, I, I, I'm <clears throat> the idiot in the room, so I get to ask the idiot questions. You, you said something really interesting where Boyd started with ODA, with observed, um, you know, decide and act. Adding in orientate. Why? That seems like a subtle differentiation between the two, but it seems like an important. Talk to me about the different, why there's these two O's, why there's orient and observe, and why these two things are slightly different. I think it's as simple as just answering, saying what is actually observing, what is actually deciding, what is actually acting. It's it's our cognition. It's our cognitive software. That's That's orientation. That's actually what is doing the observation that's actually doing what's you know, doing the shaping 
that's what's doing the deciding that's what's doing the acting that's what's doing the learning it's our it's our cognition so it's our processor our internal processor you know one of the ways i explain this in a, say to my kids if i have an iphone what what makes the iphone work and i say well daddy it's the it's the ios it's the software for the iphone i go okay what if i don't update it what if i don't keep updating the apps what if i don't keep updating the, the software what happens and they say well it won't work or you're not going to have access to certain things or you're not going to be able to do other things or your, your capabilities are going to be limited it's the same thing with our cognitive software if we're not expanding and building orientation, the observations just don't happen. They come from somewhere. Where do they come from? Observations are our orientation, our, our sense-making uh, sense capabilities. What we think, believe, how we're wired, you know, who we are actually, who we are medically, everything, all of that processes how we make those observations, just like, just like software does in an, in an iPhone. And if we don't keep, Boyd's point was, if we don't keep learning and augmenting that orientation, if we don't keep revising and, and updating our, our model of the world or our view of the world or our perception of the world, we're going to diverge because it's going to become misaligned. And if it becomes misaligned with reality, we're going to be uh, vulnerable to volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, because we're not going to be able to operate effectively. We're going to have making observations that are misshapen, uh, therefore bad decisions and actions. And eventually we're going to we're going to uh, become irrelevant or obsolete. I want to pick up on your um, introduction to OODA Loop as a, as a midshipman. Clearly, Boyd is a, a military man, a US Air Force pilot. The OODA Loop has been around in the military for, for a, a long time now. And, and my first introduction to it was very similar to you. I was a, a young officer in training, and, and it was presented as you know, the, the typical loop, the OODA, you know, as a single cycle of activity and they they rolled out the the typical cliche of you've just got to go through the cycle faster than the adversary and you get your decision advantage uh, and therefore you're going to win and and i kind of left it there assuming that there's you know, it, it makes kind of logical sense there's this process and we can all kind of understand the the idea that we observe what's going on around us we work out think you know uh, cognition of what that means we then make decisions we then act and that kind of made sense to me and i kind of parked it and it wasn't until much much later in my career that i really started to, to delve back into what is this OODA loop what does it mean and i started finding more out about boyd about his thinking and then it became about sketch and it became about the wider psychological aspects the heuristics the biases and, and the complexity of but it took me probably 10 or 15 years to get there. Um, I was still serving in the military. Mark, did you home in on UDA as a midshipman and, and carry that through? Or did you come back to it? Did you go on the same sort of journey that I did, where you kind of threw it out as, yeah, this common sense thing, and then, and then realized much, much later that there's far more to it? Yeah, the latter, not the former. You know, when you're... When you're in the throes of uh, learning as a midshipman and even doing the warfighting curriculum as a, as a young officer, you're you're doing rote memorization. Oftentimes, you're doing you're going right to practical application. So there's not often a lot of time for for deep pondering. And on the commandant's reading list, which is a big deal in the Marine Corps, which Boyd was influential on, a lot of the books. I mean, you're gaining this stuff inherently, 
but not to the point that I've pulled it apart the way I have and the way I continue to do. That came after I left the military. And it came when I got into the business world and I just started asking the question, why am I seeing everything differently than everybody I work with? You know, why am I able to see certain opportunities that others don't? Or why do I, why do I not look at this as a bad thing? Why do I look at this as an opportunity? Or why does this not seem like the end of the world? You know, like the great financial crisis where I, uh, I came into the investment industry right about that time. Another thing led me back to it. There was a book by John Rock. Well, Franzo Singh had a book that came out, Strategy, Science, and the Art of War. And you can see my yeah. copy is very well loved. Yeah. And if I recall that it came out in 07, if I am right, I think it came out in 07. And then um, John Robb, who we've had on the show twice, uh, John Robb came out with a book called Brave New War. And it was kind of that fusion of three things for me. It was Osinga's book, Rob's book, and then my economics curriculum. I was going to graduate training in my, in my evenings as an investment wholesaler and picking up a master's degree in economics. And I started realizing that there was a lot more to what I had been taught. And I had been taught well. I mean, the Marines do a very good job of, of, of teaching you these theories and teaching you the application of these theories. But the grander context of, of the universal applicability of it, that wasn't really something until I got out. And I realized that things like warfighting, the book, for example, were being used in boardrooms and they were being used in emergency rooms. They were being used in hospital systems. They're being used in sports teams. So there was something more to the story. And being a Jesuit educated guy that that loves to read, as you can see, this isn't a it's not a backdrop. I spent a lot of time deep diving on it and I was seeing it unfold through my interactions with capital markets, with clients inside of capital markets. And it was a really good school for me in that respect. So what I'd love to you to talk about that, because at the moment we're sort of dancing around this concept and saying there's more to it. What was your next step into the detail of it? How did you start to apply it? And how did you sort of expand the concept in your mind and explore it? So my master's degree focused on like a, it's a theoretical track that I did. So the, the theory that I really was drawn to was from the Austrian school of economics, which would be things like Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Karl Menger, if you go back in time, uh, Cantillon, uh, Turgot, like some of the, uh, Jean-Baptiste, like some of these, you know, old classical e economists. And I was realizing that they had a completely differentiated view than say a Keynesian economist, right? That was one of the things I, they're looking at the same exact thing, but they define money differently. They have a, a different theory on capital. They have a different theory about exchange. They have a different theory about pricing. They have a different theory about why people even go to market in the first place, or they have a different theory on what market actually is. You know, it's more of a process versus a place, that kind of a thing. And I started to see these really broad distinctions. And what it led me to believe and, 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 and continue to work on was that Basically, these economists are all looking at the same thing, or these portfolio managers, they're all looking at the same thing, and they're coming up with completely different conclusions, which lead them to different decisions and different actions, but also leads them to different results. Well, what's going on here? Well, it's Boyd, it's, it's UDA. They, their orientations are differentiated. Thus, they're seeing opportunities where others see crisis, or thus they're seeing crisis where others see opportunities. And they're making their decisions based on that orientation and whether or not that orientation is aligned with reality, that'll come out later based off of their results. They're going to get really bad results if, if their orientation is, is, is misaligned. Um, they're going to get better results if their orientation is aligned and they're able to adapt and make the necessary changes. And when you go back and you read a lot of that canon from uh, you know 2008 and you read about Lehman Brothers and you read about uh, Countrywide, 
observations, decisions, and actions were being made from very diff different orientations. People are familiar maybe with the big short. Michael Burry looked at the same exact set of facts and came up with a completely different conclusion because his orientation was completely differentiated than the mass of people that were in that marketplace. And he was able to seize that opportunity where others saw saw crisis if that if that that, that would be a, a decent example and if people are familiar with that movie or familiar with that book that's a classic example of how a differentiated orientation gets different results so one assumes then the next thought process is and i i suspect this is the wrong language how do you get the i was going to say the best orientation probably that's a bad word how do you find the most advantageous orientation i have to believe that's your next line of thinking which is well hang on a minute we've got 100 people, 20 orient themselves this way, 20 orient and these are the people the most successful. How do I find a way to orient myself in the most advantageous way? Is that where you kind of went? I don't want to lead the witness here. Yeah, no, no, I'll take it because it, it's a lot of what we do professionally at, at AGLX. Boyd had a quote that said, you have to challenge all assumptions. Otherwise, doctrine today becomes dogma forever after and things go, things go unchallenged, things go untested. The, the the person in charge said so and that's the end of it whereas we would recommend say something like deep effective pre-brief and debrief and red teaming where in, in a psychologically safe way you can challenge assumptions and you can continue to to test things because as soon as you think you have it all figured out and you think you're absolutely correct that's when you're going to get clobbered so to your point i think the successful companies the successful entrepreneurs the successful sports teams the successful teachers the su successful uh, special needs parents right they're constantly revising and updating their model of the world and they're doing so in a way that they're open to that right or they have an environment say if they're on a team that assumptions are able to be challenged and we're able to attack the plan and not the person so that we can continuously test and challenge our, uh, as you said, assume, you know, we continuously challenge our assumptions and try to get us as close to what's really going on as possible because we're never gonna be precise. We're never gonna have precise information. We're, it's, we're always gonna be subject to uncertainty and entropy. And in fact, that's where the title of our podcast comes out of. In the, in the conceptual spiral brief, Boyd talks about all these things that we're subject to, uncertainty, imprecision, uh, entropy, and others. And there's no way out of the requirement to reorient, to constantly be reorienting because of all those things. This is where I get really excited because my observation over 20 years is that businesses work hard to come up with a plan. And then what they do is they hold on to that plan for dear life. And it either ends in victory yeah. and they all buy a beach house in Malibu or it ends in failure. And they say, well, I failed fast and I moved on. The bit that I don't see are businesses constantly genuinely reassessing where they are. The assumptions right. that were made a year ago are, are left. And, I, I, and I'm not convinced I am unique in seeing this. I think that's the default rather than, than the rarity. And what you're describing is exactly why Kodak doesn't exist the way it did and why, and why Blockbuster doesn't exist. There's a weird thing going on here, which says we have to believe in our plan because we yeah. came up with a plan. And if we if we question the plan, somehow there's weakness. So maybe there's a question here, which is 
for businesses that follow that model, we and, and the classic one, which you'll have seen is, yeah, we've just done uh, 2024 planning. So what we decided in September of 23 is now true. By the way, this is not for my company. This is now true for the next 12 months, whether it changes or not go. How do you and, and they need that because we need to communicate to the organization what our plan is. It all hangs on the fact to some degree that those facts don't change. So how do you go to a business and say, you know, that thing that you hold on dearly to and you hold on tightly to, you need to be ready to throw that away. Because, by the way, the day after you made your plan, something changed. It's really interesting, Chris. You, you've talked there a lot about plans. Mark and I had a, a, an exchange on LinkedIn uh, a few weeks ago where we were talking about the definition of strategy and if you hang things on a plan a plan is linear it's based on an assumption of certainty and all of this comes down to complexity and this is where the link between I, i'll get mark to, to to either agree or disagree in a moment but this is where the link between the OODA loop and the framework of thinking links to the Kinefin framework and the idea of complicated problem sets and, and complex problem sets. And if you plan, you are working on the assumption that things are steady state, that you've got all the information and all you need to do is then allocate resources to meet those challenges. But if we think about the Kinefin framework, the difference between complicated and complex you've got uncertainty, you've got incomplete information, you've got things that are going to change, you've got the assumptions that you're making between cause and effect that need to be tested. And so the fact that we're talking about plans and we're not talking about strategy, I think is at the root of the, the problem here. But I'm going to hand over to Mark. Well, I, and, and just for, sorry, Mark, you see this, we get into arguments with ourselves. That's all right. I, I, think, I think that's true, but I actually want to extend this to strategy. You are you are one hundred percent right. That the, the the worst crime is we made a plan a year ago and we're going to stick with that plan, whatever. But I would argue an equally dangerous crime is we built a strategy a year ago and we haven't changed that. So Mark, you don't build a strategy, and this is the problem. A strategy is not a thing you have. A strategy is a process you go through to achieve goals, and you have to recognise it comes with the conditions of uncertainty, and it's the link between strategy and tactics the application of capability to achieve things, it's the bit in the middle that's really, really important, which is the feedback of information, the testing, the challenging of assumptions, the creation of psychological safety to allow people to challenge your thinking and have the diversity and all the things we've talked about. That's what strategy is. So if your strategy is something you can hold in your hand and say, here is our strategy, you've misunderstood what strategy is. A, a lot to unpack there, and I, and, I, and I took notes as we were talking. So the first thing I would say regarding plans versus planning, they're two different things, and, and, and most don't understand that. A plan is absolutely worth it, worthless when it comes into contact with the enemy, when it com comes into contact with competition. As soon as the game starts, the plan goes out the door. The planning is priceless because there was the learning that we're going to be able to uh, incorporate, and as things change throughout the the game or the battle or the or the the quarter or whatever it is that we're up against we're going to be able to make the necessary shifts to achieve the overall goal but the actual plan and sticking to the plan that's exactly what you hope your competitors do you hope that they hold to that plan and you hope that because you're going to see them continue to double triple down on it when it doesn't when it doesn't work now if you understand boyd and you understand uda you're going to know that 
planning was how you learn that you can identify that in a competitor and you can exploit that to your own, uh, to your own advantage. One of my favorite examples, and I've, I've used this a lot in discussions, but we could relate as, as UK, USA here, is D-Day. When you think of all the planning that went into D-Day before they actually crossed the line of departure and, and, and got underway to, to assault the beaches at, at Normandy, think of all the intricate planning. Think of all the scenarios that they thought of. Think of all the equipment that they, that they made you know, paratroopers load up with for every possibility that they could imagine, right? And then what happened? VUCA takes over, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. We, we land at the wrong beach. The leader's killed. The, the planes drop everybody off at the, uh, the drop zone, everybody, the different drop zone. Everybody's, uh, they went too fast and everybody broke their neck when they went out the door, whatever it is. What actually happened, the planning saved them, not the plan. Because the planning is what empowered the low-level non-commissioned officers, the low-level officers to achieve the intent. They knew what, they knew what needed to happen, right? And that process of planning made them successful ultimately, not the, not the plan. Because to the other thing you said, it was complex, not complicated. Most ap approach things as if it were complicated, as if there's a linear solution. The, the world is not like that. It's nonlinear. It's asymmetrical. Why? Because it, it involves humans and humans are complex. Humans are complex adaptive systems. We're not numbers that can be reduced as if we were you know, circuits inside of a circuit board or, or, or components of an engine. We're, we're, we're complex. And then the other point about strategy, Gareth alluded to, as Boyd said, strategy is a mental tapestry of, of changing intentions as we move forward through time to achieve a certain end state or to, to achieve a certain goal. There's a flow to it. There's, there's not a, a rigid, we're sticking to this strategy, this is our strategy, and that's the end of it. Because once you do that, you become vulnerable. Now, again, in speaking with sports teams or law firms or whoever, that's exactly what you want your opponent to think. You want your opponent to think that that plan is writ on stone or that strategy is, uh, is inviable. Whereas on the other side, the, the, the adaptive side, what, what, what we coach and teach is that's exactly what you want your competitors to think. We're going to continue to operate in a different way. We're going to, it's, it's more like say jazz versus, you know, classical Baroque music. There, there's not a lot of room for improv. There's not a lot of room for, for flow. It's very rigid and structured. Whereas what we're alluding to is accepting the world for what it is and having the, the adaptability, the flexibility to make the necessary changes as things continuously change. So I think we're, uh, we're edging towards the word agility in a minute. In fact, I think that that touches on for everything you've said you need to be and i'm using this very carefully agile in the sense you need to sort of and i apologize use this loop of of, of testing these things and, and i live in the world of agile software development where you inspect and adapt inspect and adapt inspect and adapt uh, just before i sort of push you on the agility piece because i think that's that's going to be really important I love how I go through my career and I see a thing which I think is brilliant. And then a year later, I think it's terrible. And then a year later, I think it's brilliant again. Your reference to jazz was brilliant. I was in a business where they said, we are going to plan the next three years quarter by quarter. Hmm. Now, I'm sure if they were here, they would say, no, 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 no. It was the planning that mattered. But it wasn't because it actually got to the point for the next quarter, you're going to have a day by day plan. And at the time, all I thought was, this is a nightmare because we're going to spend all our time on the plan and none of our time doing anything. But I, the reason why I was reminded of that is that is not jazz. 
that is the idea that it is a fixed linear path and you must never divert from the path and at the very end is nirvana when i think your point is no you need this freedom of 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 freedom to change freedom to evolve freedom to think freedom to improvise and i think that's a lovely thought that we don't think of enough lots of people would say well you're just not planning you're making it up as you go along and i think there's an element of well but the smart people mix both those things together mark made the point earlier that boyd used to talk about the doctrine and ensuring that your doctrine doesn't become dogma yeah. and so and i i think that alludes to the point that you know, having a plan is not a bad thing going through the process of planning to come up with a plan firstly it, it allows people to collectively work together explore challenges and ideas and explore new territory but it also gives you something from which to change from so if you have a plan as you get in new information in as the situation as you orientate to a new situation and people in your team and organization do that also you can then collectively understand where you're deviating away from that plan. But what you've got to do is create organizations that A, empower people to do that, and B, recognize when they're deviating from the fixed plan, recognize how much they're doing that, and therefore have those conversations and those communication channels to discuss whether that's the right or wrong approach. If you don't have a plan at all, if you just start from, you know, we've got to be reactive, if you don't have a destination, then you're just going to be buffeted by the winds. So if you don't have a plan, you're in just a dangerous position as the situation changes around you than if you have a plan and stick to it rigidly. You're right, Chris. It, you know, this is about balancing those two processes. And it's all about having that feedback and recognizing that there are externalities to the decision process. We need to take a short break now. We'll be right back. How do you how do you think about this, Mark, in terms of getting that right tempo? Of, of going around and and uh, the right tempo for the jazz for want of a better word yeah well i love jazz i'm a massive jazz fan in fact one of my students at the leadership course that i was teaching she runs a nonprofit uh dedicated to jazz and her name is uh, her name is stephanie and this is how i was helping her understand uda and how the pro understanding intent and understanding that all of the practice and the training that musicians have as part of their orientation empowers them for the improvisation that's needed during jazz. It's, 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 it's like ongoing learning. So on Sunday, we were, I was at a house where a very famous jazz pianist was in, in, uh, here in Columbus visiting. He was playing with a professor at a local university who's the head of the jazz department. And he was play the, the professor was playing the guitar and the pianist was naturally playing the piano. They had never played together before, yet their orientations of, say, jazz and improvisation and, and classical musical training, and all that stuff allowed them to immediately harmonize and create a very beautiful sort of impromptu concert 
inside of someone's home that you just walked away like, wow, that was really impressive. And those two orientations came together as a team with the intent of creating a, a, a very memorable experience for the 15 to 20 guests that were there in a home listening to them play. You didn't have to download it from iTunes, right? There you were. And they were able to do that uh, immediately. They had the right, you know, as Boyd would say, IOHI, right? They had the right insight, orientation, harmony, agility, and initiative to make that happen where I could take two people that had never played together and they could do that. One final note about jazz, you know, another Marine Corps doctrinal publication other than uh, Warfighting that people should read is uh, Marine Corps doctrinal publication number seven, which is entitled Learning. And in the second chapter of that, there's uh, the title is The Culture of Learning. And I think this is really what we're getting at. Organizations and teams, and they have to have a culture of learning. A culture of learning empowers agility. It empowers insight. It empowers harmony. It empowers initiative, right? And if I don't have the humility to do that type of learning, I'm not going to be and, and open to that type of learning. I'm, I'm not going to be nearly as effective as I would if I, if I actually did. So they quote in that in the opening bit of that chapter, uh, Wynton Marsalis, who's a very famous jazz musician here in the United States, famous trumpeter. And this was his quote inside of a Marine Corps doctrinal publication. It says, humility engenders learning because it beats back the arrogance that put blinders on. It leaves you open for truths to reveal themselves. You don't stand in your own way. Do you know how you can tell when someone is truly humble? I believe there's only one simple test because they consistently observe and listen. The humble improve. They don't assume. I know the way, right? So think back to what we discussed, a plan. A plan is myopic. It put blinders on and it's doing the opposite of what he says in that book. We're not, we're not open to new truths. We're not open to new re revelations. So we're not going to win this football game. You know, we're not going to win this legal case. We're not going to win this, this, you know, we're going to lose to this competitor in business because why we're stuck on this plan. We're stuck on this strategy. There's no deviation. We've been doing it this way forever. And that's the end of it. So something novel is a threat, right? You've read the book, Billion Dollar Lessons and think about, wouldn't you love to have been in that room where the discoverers of digital photography at Kodak brought that to the board and said, this is going to change the world. And they said, no, <laughs> no, it's not. It won't change the world for 15 to 20 years. And they do nothing for 15 or 20 years. And you know, the rest of the story, really what we're getting at is how do we promote and harmonize around learning? How do we unite our orientations together as a team to coordinate and direct action together? Well, we have to do a lot of planning, but we can't be wed to a plan. We can't be led to something that's so constrained or so inflexible that's going to uh, curtail our ability to operate as, as VUCA continues to unfold. That's really important. And your analogies are, are really bringing this to life. So, so thank you. I, I'd like to make the point that if Chris and I got together and decided to play some jazz, neither of us being musicians, it would be terrible. And in the same way that in, in D-Day on the 6th of June, if the paratroopers that had been dropped into the wrong locations and therefore had to just join random groupings of individuals didn't have the same basic training. They didn't have the same understanding of how to use the equipment. They didn't have the same experiences of going through tactics. Again, they wouldn't have been able to very, very quickly form competitive teams that were able to seize that initiative, understand what's going on and still meet that collective commander's intent. Mm. So it, 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 we're getting back to, it's about finding the balance between the collective fixed you know, 
the rules, the the lessons, the what's gone before with getting that new information in order to adapt and improvise to the changing environment, changing surroundings. So, yeah, I, I think your examples have really brought that to life. Well, I, I'm not going to let you guys get away with this. So what we've what we've said is, which I I, I think the, the, the two key things so far are the orientation the planning, the activity of planning is where the magic happens. And I 100% agree. The dogmatic adoption of plans is what you hope the opposition will do because there is the, the highest likelihood of failure. But the bit that I'm I'm going to poke you guys on is we've, we, we've sort of danced around this idea. There's this balance. The purpose of a plan is to help people understand what we will do together yeah. as a group to achieve well, something. Orient, yeah. Orient's a good word there. That's a fair there's, word. So there's yeah. a, there's a there's a thing that says a plan that lasts for a year is a bad plan. A plan that lasts for zero seconds is a bad plan because we don't know what we're doing together. There's somewhere in between. I, there isn't a magic answer of it's a day, it's a week, but I want you to talk more about this tempo of change. And, and I'm sure it varies from businesses to football teams to talk more about how do you find the right tempo? Because bringing it back to the real world, today, I am going to go into meetings and I've got to deal with stuff. Today, my world is around quarterly planning. And that to me is this balance of what I can manage with the day-to-day -day life. And that might be wrong. To turn it into sort of a, a dumb question, should I be doing planning every month? Should I be doing planning every quarter or something? And more, more interestingly, how can I feel my way given my context? How do I get to that place where I'm finding the optimum tempo? So Boyd used to use an acronym EFAS, E-F-A-S. And E was Einheit, um, was mutual trust. And this came, this came from the, the sort of the German uh, reevaluation of itself after the Napoleonic days. This came from... Uh, German military thinkers, sort of the beginning of the age of, say, Clausewitz or whatever. But there was Einheit, was the E, which meant mutual trust. There was a Fingerspitzengefühl, which was translated nice. as finger, fingertip feel or um, uh, intuition. Um, a was uh, Auftrag or Auftrag's tactic, which are, you know, mission, it, it, it's poorly translated in the United States to say mission command, but it could also be, you know, mission type orders or contract or uh, empowerment, where I empower the people that I'm leading. Uh, and then the last one was Schwerpunkt, was uh, uh, S was uh, Schwerpunkt, which was sort of the, the focus and direction, right? So when you think of a, if a team had that, if they trusted each other, they develop a, a, a mutual intuition where we could communicate implicitly without actually talking. And since we all understand what has to happen in the final end state, as we continue down uh, time, aiming towards that Schwerpunkt, it's not going to be a linear line. It's probably going to be like this because things change and tensions change, but ultimately we're trying to get to that end state. You know, then we, then we can break it up. We can say, well, here's what I got to do in the short run, the mid run, the long run, or here's what I have to do, you know, uh, tactically, operational, strategically. There's, there's, there's different ways to break it down. I don't think it would ever have like a definite time period. I think when people operate on say uh, on definite time periods, that could be, challenging although inside of a sports event right you have a definite time period right so you well, th that would be a constraint i wonder whether this is about because we, we talk about this in agile and it's about artifacts and ceremonies so 
what I've found, and actually when we do our own planning, we, we say next week we're doing our planning. It, it's a little bit of what we call pantomime. We already know the answers because we've already worked to create the answers. The purpose of that meeting is to say, let's all come together. Let's all talk about all the answers. Do we understand? Are we ready to go? So the idea of artifacts and ceremony is less about that's when the magic happens. It's that's a point in time, which is almost a checkpoint. Do we all understand? Does anyone have any questions? Did we miss anything? So it's almost the planning goes on between the planning points and it's the planning point, which is the come together. Did we get it right? Which I think is an inversion of the historic model, which is planning is where you, you spend three days working out what you're going to do and the rest of the time you do it. And I think what we're saying, and this feels more like the real world is, the planning happens in the larger periods, but you do need these checkpoints along the way to come together. I think it's worth recognizing as well that there isn't one planning type of course of one not. planning process. So in all organizations, there are hierarchies, there are subcultures, and they're all going through from individuals all the way up to the C-suite collective executive. They're all going through their own decision cycles, their own decision processes. And, and of course, we as individuals are trying to make decisions that are best for our personal safety, our personal circumstance, as well as make decisions for the team, for the organisation. So there's lots and lots of planning all happening concurrently, and it's kind of wheels within wheels. So as soon as you recognise that, you're straight into understanding the Alstrout tactic piece, the mission command, that there's another element to this there's balancing the weight of decision making across the organization to those bits of the organization that are best placed to do it so when we talk about tempo there is no fixed timeline there's no ultimate you know if you plan monthly it's better than planning daily because it's context dependent and it depends on who within that organization has access to the information and how fast that information updates. I think that's, that's the secret. That's, that's that's what I meant when I said the word tempo. I was very careful not to say sort of calendar. But it's more of a rhythm. It's more yeah. of a rhythm. Yeah. yeah. Like how jazz. You, Go back to jazz. You know? How do you find the rhythm that works for you? So, you know, in Scrum, the rhythm is a, a bi-weekly rhythm, for want of a better word. And actually you can yeah. do Scrum monthly. That's okay. But the point is there is a natural rhythm that comes from this you know, quarterly um, planning, good or bad. There's how it's, it's how do you find that rhythm? And I, I don't know, Mark, yeah. you, you must have a sense of that, which is this has to be something to do with how yeah. quickly you can orient yourself, how quickly you can absorb information. Put it in sports context, right? Where say in sport, assuming that I have mutual trust, assuming that we've developed an intuitive feel and we can implicitly speak to each other just by looking and feel assuming that decisions are, are pushed down to the lowest level and we all have the same focus and direction that gives me a lot more ability to be fluid in my movements it, it gives me a lot more ability to operate at a faster cadence than say my opponents that are very rigid very structured uh, maybe in a dictatorial system one of my favorite examples is vince lombardi vince lombardi is an american football I don't know what you all would call that gridiron, right? In uh, American soccer. No, American football. We American, call it American, football. American football, yeah. Well, it's very, uh, as you know, big over here. 
I was watching a show about uh, John Madden, who was a famous coach and also a very famous broadcast personality for many years. He just passed away a few years ago. When Madden was an up-and-coming coach, he attended a seminar that Vince Lombardi would hold. And Vince Lombardi, the championship trophy is called the Lombardi Trophy. He's one of the greatest football coaches of all time. He's most famous for coaching the Green Bay Packers. What, what Madden was talking about was there was an eight-hour seminar. And it's kind of like, it almost sounds like John Boyd with the you know eight-hour <laughs> seminars. Yeah. There was an eight-hour seminar on a move, on a play called the Power Sweep. And as... You went through it over and over and over and over and over and over again over a period of eight hours. The coaches that were learning, if they were open to it, would start to see possibilities that didn't previously exist, that the play didn't have to be run exactly as it was drawn up, that if the players were empowered and they saw a better block or they saw a better opening or they saw a better opportunity, that they were empowered to take that and that would speed up the rhythm of the offense would catch the defense off guard. So the, the more that you drilled and you knew that play and the possibilities within that one play, a world of possibilities that didn't previously exist opened up that empowered you to see what others don't. Yeah. And you could, and, and back to tempo, you could catch the uh, opponent off guard and they don't know how to react. They don't know how to stop it. And you get to the point where you're executing what Boyd would have called fa fast transients that an opponent has no answer for what you're doing because they're not able to operate at the tempo that you are. So it's the same process in business, sports, it doesn't matter. If you're in a competitive environment and you develop those things like mutual trust and uh, implicit communications and, 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 and decisions are empowered to the lowest level, that speed that you're going to develop, that variety, uh, Boyd will also say variety, rapidity, harmony, and initiative – all of those fruits of that are going to catch your opponent off guard, flat-footed, where the point where they won't even know what's happening to them. That's ultimately what you want. That's that's the power of this, of this, uh, of this stuff. And by the way, which was why Boyd and Chuck Spinney wanted to classify it because they didn't want this the 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 Soviets to figure this out, like how to how to how to operate at a faster uh, a faster tempo in a way that catches the other side completely off guard. Yeah, fascinating. I, I've done some sort of research in my own world on how much we need to classify this kind of information and how much we want to make it very transparent and very public. And I think the whole Soviet Cold War argument is, is a really interesting one because actually by exposing the Soviets to the ideas around this actually probably would have had a far more influential aspect to changing their whole philosophy because the, the soviet idea is about centralization and so they don't have the ability ability to apply these concepts without right. fundamentally reorientating there's there's, a, there's an argument to say you know, you can bring your adversary on side and change their whole fundamental views and outlooks uh, and then very very quickly you integrate them into your way of thinking and that kind of goes along the, the lines of some too. So I think there's some I've, all, to that. I've I've always been fascinated with insurgency and guerrilla warfare. And when when before before 9-11, the classic case was the Mujahideen versus the Soviets in Afghanistan, because as you say, they were centralized, they were using equipment that that didn't match to the to the mountains and, and the, the tribal systems that were able to you know eventually repel them out of Afghanistan. You know, insurgency is another thing we could talk about, but 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 Boyd had a lot to say about this one of his starting points 
was why did we get dominated in Vietnam? We had every technology advantage. We had every capital advantage. We had manpower advantage. We had training advantages. We had every advantage you could think of. Yet we were defeated, you know, through a, a network of guerrilla fighters that, that didn't have anything that approached the advantages that we had on, uh, or I say we, you know, the United States had on, on paper. And that was a big question for him as he started exploring these ideas. Why is it that oftentimes the side that is outnumbered, outgunned, outfunded, why is it that they pull it off? What, what, what is it about those, those teams in business and warfare, wherever, what is it about those teams that empower them to get those kind of asymmetrical results when on paper they should not have? If we think about the the tempo and the the challenge of understanding how quickly we need to go through these cycles of taking new information and learning, I think we've got to recognize the external stimuli that, that create those conditions. So your uh, description of decision-making in a, in a football game the, the external stimuli that kind of create that are, well, firstly, those the fixed time rules of the game that you're playing. But then there's things like the bell curve of sort of the average speed that a, a, a player can run at. How mm. fast can you throw a ball? How many players are there on the pitch? These are all things that are going to create the conditions from which change can take place. Yeah. Boyd in the you know fast jet fighter pilot world, you're talking about you know aircraft that fly at eight miles a minute, that fire missiles that go at fifteen miles a minute, radars that work at the speed of light, and suddenly your your decision cycles are speeding up really really fast based on the technologies that are involved, and I think that kind of creates this. If you're thinking about you know on a C suite within an organisation. You've got to think about the context of what does the operations of that organization look like. You're trying to magnify and amplify the friction of your opponent while you're reducing your own. Yeah. You're, you're trying to put them in a situation. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to create a rapidly changing environment for them that they don't have a that they don't have an answer for. Um, another football example would be Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence Taylor played for the New York Giants. He's arguably one of the greatest defensive players of all time. One of the changes that had to happen in the game was the position of left tackle to block somebody like a Lawrence Taylor that could come in lightning fast where you wouldn't even see him and end a quarterback's career. The famous case was Joe Theismann. He broke his leg in two places. He never took another snap after that, that the game would change. They had to reorient, in other words, because there was no answer for someone like a Lawrence Taylor yeah. coming on. on it's called the weak, the weak side because most quarterbacks are, are right-handed. Um, another thing would be the, the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh and I'm a Pittsburgh Steeler. Uh, I'm part of that tribe. I'm, I'm not like I know what that means. That's fine. But uh, the, the, well, the, the Americans in the audience will know. But anyway, there was two players, James Harrison and Troy Polamalu, that would hit so hard that the, the concussion protocol and a lot of the things that have evolved since then, they were the reasons for that change because there was no answer to what it was that they had figured out within the constraints of uh, – within the constraints of American football at that time. So I guess the other point of this is that these things happen fractally. It could happen down at the lowest level. It could happen at the organizational level and everything, uh, everything in between, because wherever humans are involved, they all have orientations. They have a collective orientation if they're a team uh, and that can scale up or down and it could have a, a, a great effect on, on change in, uh, in any direction up, down or laterally. 
I, I suspect we're coming towards the end, but I'm, I want to cheat because there's something which I've been thinking a lot about recently. And I think it ties very much with where we started today around orientation. I would hypothesize that most human beings are terrible at orientation. And what I mean by that specifically is we have great practice of looking through our own eyes and we have terrible practice at looking through other people's eyes. And successful orientation, as you gave at the example at the beginning, is to say, here's what I see, but I'm now going to pause, think very carefully about what other people see, and that will help me orient. How you must see this a lot with businesses where they come and say, we're number one, Kodak, we're number one, it's going to be great. We're all fine. We're going to carry on, they're going to lose. And you, if you were in that boardroom, you would say, let me orient you in a different way. How do you think about that? Well, it ties back to what we were saying when I when I used the Winton Marsalis quote from MCDP7 Learning, um, which I guess you could link to because it's available for PDF. But he used the word humility. And you, you have to have the humility that you don't know everything and that you're always learning. Boyd adamantly rejected the term expert. He hated being referred to as an expert. He thought he took it as a personal insult because he thought that an expert was nothing more than a know-it-all that know a lot about everything and, and, and at the same time, know nothing, right? We, when, we're, when we're not humble, there's no way that we're able to interact with each other with red teaming and debriefing and, and, and trying to learn or say that, you know, uh, Ponch uses this quote all the time and it's I, I use it now myself, systems drive behavior. If the system is such that it's not psychologically safe, people aren't allowed to share their ideas we're cutting off learning. We're not able to augment our orientation. And we always have to be mindful that the way Boyd uses the words orientation and orient, they're not always the same. There's orientation, my orientation, the noun, and there's also orientation, the process. And then there's, uh, I orient, like at my orientation is what's actually orienting. But what what the orientation actually is has got to be the critical component. It's it's who we are, what we believe, what we think, what we learn, uh, where we've been, you know, how we're educated, how how we uh, you know where we come from. And I need that diverse perspective, right? Because so this gets to the other point: how do we teach that? I love to use the example that Boyd used to say: "What's a pyramid?" And it's in uh, Chuck Spinney's briefing called uh, Evolutionary Epistemology of Destruction and Creation, which is a PDF online that you could link to as well. And I have to tell you, most people that talk UDA and they think they know everything about UDA, check to see if they've read Destruction and Creation. That's Boyd's only published work. It was published uh, 3 September 1976. It's the, the densest 11 to 15, depending on the version you have, 11 to 15 pages you're ever going to read. But it's fusing the ideas of because of entropy, because of uncertainty, and because of incompleteness, systems cannot verify their efficacy within themselves. Thus, we continuously have to break and revise the model to improve our uh, capacity for free and independent action. Chuck Spinney was Boyd's closest collaborator. Chuck Spinney's epistemology was the sort of the Rosetta Stone for me to finally understand destruction and creation as Boyd uh, as Boyd set it out. So I would encourage everybody to read destruction and creation and accompany it with Chuck Spinney's evolutionary epistemology in order to understand Uda beyond the circular uh, graphic. And, and that's part of the uh, that's part of the Spinney brief. But one of the things that's in the Spinney brief, and this goes back to what you were ask about, how do we change perspectives, right? There's a question at the top, and Boyd used to ask this, what is a pyramid? 
and he'll show an isosceles triangle, a square, an isosceles triangle that's bisected and a square with a with an X in it, essentially. And I flash those up on screens a lot. And I say, what's that? And they'll say, that's a square. And I go, what's that? They'll say, that's a triangle. And you know, what's that? It's a triangle with a line down the middle or whatever. The point of it is no one ever says, with the sole exception of my dyslexic son who got it on the first try, no one ever says, well, it's a triangle. However, I'm open to the possibility that I'm looking at the side of a pyramid, one side of a pyramid, or it's a square, but I'm open to the possibility that it could be the bottom of a the bottom of a pyramid, or it's a triangle with a line down the center, but I could be looking at a pyramid for a... nobody does that. Right. And in fact, what we're doing is while we're so hell bent on triangle, it was in fact a pyramid and that's how we get destroyed because our thinking was only limited to the possibility that it was a triangle, not that it was in fact a pyramid. Now that's a very, you know, basic uh, sort of academic explanation. But the point of it is, is that when perspectives aren't brought in, when multiple perspectives aren't brought in, there's no learning going on. It goes back to what I think what we're getting at is empathy. How do we have the humility and the empathy to honor other perspectives to appreciate other perspectives, to put value on other perspectives that empower us in turn to see things in a different light, different from how our competition might, or, or, or see it in a way that's more aligned with reality versus, versus less realigned in reality. We touch on this week after week, um, and I've got this thing that I'm sure we should talk about at some point about, did the good guys win? And everyone goes, no, they don't. But you've used language like empathy and humility where many people see that as either fluffy or even weakness. And yeah, I think harmony, the, people don't like harmony either. <laughs> people don't like that. And I think the point is what you're saying is that is the cornerstone of success. It's not a nice thing. It's not hippie. It's not huggy. It is, you are about to get hit by a sodding great pyramid. Unless you can spot it's a pyramid, you're going to die. The, the empathetic, the, the the ones with humility will spot this and survive and prosper. And the ones that don't, there's a pretty fair chance they don't. I think there's a shift in terms of culture as well, which is a, a part of it. How many people in a business at the top, your goal is to know the answers and to have the plan. And yet we're saying, yes, but you also need to have this vulnerability so that actually you can be better informed and not get caught out. Turns out this is really difficult stuff. It, yeah, it is. It's it's simple. It's not easy. You know, you, you used, we say empathy, humility, harmony. Um, I just put it in the chat and you can share it on, uh, on, on the link or whatever. But this is the epistemology that Chet Richards created of what was actually input to Boyd's thinking from destruction and creation up until his death, which is essentially the final version of the, uh, the you know, the Uda loop sketch, Uda loop in quotes sketch. And one of the last infusions that's really amazing is Eastern thinking. So there was Zen, there was Buddhism, there was Taoism, there was the Toyota production system, there were Japanese business practices, there was the art of Japanese swordsmanship, uh, the Book of Five Rings, uh, the Japanese way of war. He had already been heavily into, in, into Sun Tzu. And I think what it does is it fuses sort of both the Western and the Eastern. And that's one of the to me, that's always been one of the most interesting differentiators of Boyd is that he does put a lot of Eastern perspective in his thinking where harmony, humility, uh, what was the other one we used? Empathy. Th those are part of those philosophical systems, and they're remarkably different than the opposite. So one of his famous cases with harmony was, you know, the, the army, you know, the United States Army 
and their doctrinal reevaluation to more of a maneuver organization. I forget what the first two were, you know, something like say, say agility and whatever, but the last word that they used was synchronization. And Boyd took his shoe off and pounded on the table. And, and, and I've been in the archive several times and I've actually read these, these correspondence with, with uh, thinkers at the U.S. Army where he's pleading with them. Do not use the word synchronization. Synchronization is for, for machines. Yeah. Okay. It's not for humans. Harmony is not a bad word because as you say, everybody thinks it's, it's, it's whatever. Yeah. But harmony is what you're ultimately trying to achieve, not synchronization. Because when you go to synchronization, you're as fast as your slowest unit, right? Go back to the patent example of the, for the breakout of D-Day, you know, the Germans were preparing to surrender because there was Patton piercing, you know, with, with the spear right at their heart, I think was the quote in the, in the Boyd book. And much to everybody's surprise, the German surprise, Patton was stopped. Why? Because everybody had to synchronize. Everybody had to catch up. Everybody had to get back online. And that type of synchronization versus harmony to what was actually happening, that adaptation to what was actually happening you know, that dragged the war on several more months and, and, and cost, uh, you know, cost a lot more lives. But that type of thinking, though, where we're talking about things like harmony, empathy, and uh, humility, there, there is a very Eastern aspect of it that's not always common in sort of our, 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 our Western thinking. I, re I really like the term coherence because it, it kind of goes after the same thing as, as harmony, I guess. Um, and I, I'm continually talking to clients about the need to stop thinking about their organizations as mechanical systems. And we, we hear it a lot, you know, like, I want to oil the machine. I want it to you know, be slick and efficient. And the thing with the machine is, you know, it, it can be really efficient, but it will be really efficient at the thing it does. And if the environment around it changes, then it becomes really efficient at the wrong thing. Whereas if you think about an organization as an organic system and, you know, including the name organization, then yeah. it, it, it's quite inefficient. Organ organisms are quite inefficient, but they're adaptive. And, and they take those external impulses and they try new things and they learn and they adapt. And so I think the, the idea of shifting the analogy from my organization is a well-oiled machine to my organization is an adaptive organic system it is fundamental to accepting some of these concepts. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, the Austrian school of economics and Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. And I've, I've co-authored two academic papers with uh, your, your countryman, one of your countrymen, who's a Cambridge educated economist, undergrad and, and masters. And we talked about fusing uh, the Boyd theory into the uh, Austrian entrepreneurial theory. And it's exactly that. The economy is organic. Why? It's made up of humans. Markets are organic. Why? Because they're made up of humans and it's a, it's a place where human decision and action is occurring. And as you say, we are organisms inside of larger organisms. And, and when we look at it that way, that's more of a complexity mindset versus a complicated mindset. How many disasters could we pull up one after the other where we were looking at something complex with a complicated lens? And we approach it as if it was complicated, linear, symmetrical, and we get absolutely destroyed. Yeah. So I, I think we could talk about this all day, but unfortunately, we, we do have to uh, probably wrap this up. Well, I think uh, we have to. I think we have to persuade Mark for uh, to, to come back and continue. And I'm 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 heartbroken because I was thinking 
crap it was only this morning i said to my team members we need a well-oiled machine and so now i'm <laughs> i'm gonna spend the rest of the day feeling guilty and coming up with a language in my head which is a better answer but mark thank you so much that's been really we we say this often all the time like that's been really insightful learn this is the kind of conversation we live for where i walk away with my head hurting going okay i need to think about this because i need to evolve that into the real world so Thank you so much. It's been, it's been a real pleasure and honor to have you on come talk to us. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, make new friends through the marvels of technology uh, in, in the world that we live in. Uh, it's good to know brother veterans, even if they're on a different team, although we are allies, of course, and, and a fellow Marine. So, you know, and the, Mark, the, just before we go, we're not, we're, we're not afraid of a bit of adultery, as I think it's officially called. Do you want to tell us again the name of your podcast so that people who think he sounds a lot more interesting than those two idiots with the big accents, <laughs> they can go listen to more of you? So our podcast, um, which is sponsored by our, our company, AGLX, is called No Way Out. And if you type in No Way Out on uh, Spotify, or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, it's available. You'll see a great picture of uh, John Boyd. And um, it'll, it's hosted by myself and my uh, friend, coworker, collaborator, business partner, Ponch Rivera, Brian Ponch Rivera. Ponch is his call sign. He's a, uh, a naval aviator. And um, you can, if you go to buzzsprout.nowayout.com, that's the uh, page that can get you in any, any direction for whatever you, um, you know, for whichever way you, digest your podcasts what people will notice is that we pull from so many different disciplines and as I, as I mentioned before before we started recording you know there's people that come on that know everything about John Boyd's theories and yet know nothing about John Boyd's theories because they come from a, a different completely different perspective and um, we're trying to uh, advance and develop those things because Boyd left it open intentionally for uh, people like us, like we're doing now to keep working out and developing these ideas so they, they don't get set in stone, that they continue to evolve and adapt as, uh, as things change. And if, yeah, wonderful. Um, I, I think there's a meta element to this, isn't there? That as we explore the need to be empathetic, humble, uh, and create harmony in our systems, we also need to be empathetic, humble, and create harmony in the way that we think about these systems so yeah it's been absolutely fascinating and a real pleasure so thank you very much if you want to comment on the conversation we've had with mark then please find us on x formerly known as twitter at battling with biz that's biz with a z or feel free to email us at battling with business at gmail.com but for now thanks very much for listening goodbye from me and goodbye from me